Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of the Game Dev Show. My name's Luke Greenaway, and this week I am joined by Yuki, CEO, cat lover, OBE, <laughs> Dr. Joe Twist. Joe, how you doing? I'm very good. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Was the cat lover a bit okay? I mean, I was on cat your Cat lover's amazing. <laughs> I was just reaching over to see what cats I have in the vicinity that I can uh, cuddle. <laughs> how many cats do you have? None. I've never owned a cat in my life. Really? <laughs> I mean, humans don't own cats anyway. Let's get that clear. Yeah. Um, but no, my sister has cats. I just can't bear that commitment. Yeah, fair enough. That was a misassumption of my <laughs> So I went, on, I went on your Twitter and I saw that your background was a cat and then your mm-hmm. profile picture was also like a avatar. cat. Yep. Yeah, avatar. And I naturally assumed, like, falsely, that you um, you were a cat lady. Um, which I mean, is- I am a cat lady. Don't get me wrong, you know. And um, if I just look in my home office, you know, it is a sort of game of spot how many cat related things there are really oh yeah and that cat on my twitter profile was um an old neighbor's cat who we kind of adopted and couldn't work out she was really really young or really really old turned out she was really really old and then she died um, but i'm very good at um not feeding other people's cats but attracting <laughs> other people's cats to my vicinity let's talk about you and obviously you know i really am very excited to talk to you about Yuki. But before we get there, it'd be great to find out. I mean, where did your love for video games come from? I grew up in Hong Kong in the 70s. It obviously was a place that at the time, it was very, very influenced by Japanese culture, by American culture, by all kinds, because it's such a, it was such a melting point place. We were sort of surrounded by technology, by gadgets, by anime, manga, all these really cool kind of... So I've always loved technology. I've always loved cute things. I'm obsessed with Hello Kitty. You know, I've always loved sort of cutesy things. And then I've always loved stories. I've always loved make-believe. I was always a kid who I loved writing. I loved being in dream worlds. I loved being in different worlds. I loved acting, drama, you know. So I think I've always been attracted to media that allows me to role play, to do different things, to take myself somewhere different. But really, I suppose it first started because when I was five in 1978, I had a really bad squint. And my optician in Hong Kong advised my parents to get me this thing called Pong that had just come on the market and to play it covering up my good eye and using my bad eye because I had a lazy eye and oh, kept wondering. Wow. And I, I think really my dad just wanted Pong um, and <laughs> used that as an excuse. So I've actually got my Pong set on display in my home office and I found my um, the rifle part of it, which looks very in the way. This is 1978, right? I'd probably get arrested for it now. <laughs> and I also, I was obsessed with Game & Watch Nintendo's Game & Watch series, the original one. So I used to collect them. I was always stuck in my Game & Watch. I love story worlds and I love open worlds and I love worlds like Second Life. I was obsessed with Second Life. But I also love games that just get me into that repetitive flow state. Mm. So, you know, I'm sort of, I'm a fan of both those extremes. Like I, I find it really difficult for some, when someone says, what's your favorite game? It's like saying, what's your favorite music? I don't know, because it really depends how I feel and what I want to feel like. So games, I think, were partly to do with gadgets, technology, shiny things, but also the stories. 
yeah. and then my optician. <laughs> <laughs> and your dad's excuse. Are you, uh, are you playing anything at the moment? What was the last thing, last game um, you played? As a team, we've been having a go at uh, Pokemon Unite. Okay. And getting really badly beaten. I mean, embarrassingly so. <laughs> and, and I just, I just imagine that we're playing against, you know, all these 10 year olds who are just like, who are these clowns? <laughs> and, and I can't help take it personally, especially if we're um, the other week we were, we actually were 5v5 within the Yuki team. And, you know, some people on the Yuki team just kept coming and annihilating me personally. And do you know what? I'm going to be picking that up in their appraisals. <laughs> you know, I won't. <laughs> are, are you um? Are you are you good at games? Bad at games? Oh no, I am terrible at games. Really? <laughs> um, I've got zero patience. I love games. I love being in those worlds. I don't like games that punish me. You know, I don't really like being punished and being told that I'm shit at something. I'm extremely <laughs> competitive. So, you know, if I'm not very good at something, I have to really force myself to keep going. And it's a really good lesson in life because obviously games are really good at teaching you resilience and perseverance and, yeah. you know, critical thinking where you look back at decisions you made and you go, okay, I won't make that decision next time. But I'm kind of an impatient player. Uh, so I do like games that give me quick wins. I've been really <laughs> enjoying VR games at the moment. I've been enjoying my, um, my VR headset that I bought last October. Mm. Um, that really helped me during lockdown because I could really literally be in another world. You know, it's, yeah. it's incredible what it does to my brain. It just, VR just makes me feel like I'm literally walking through a portal into somewhere different entirely. So, you know, there's some, been some pretty good games. I've been trying to download Myst <laughs> to play. Oh, really? I can't get it to work on my Oculus to so what's going on. <laughs> well, like the old school Myst. I didn't, so they've remade it for VR. Yeah. Yeah. I don't oh, wow. know how much they've changed it or remastered it whatever but yeah i bet that'd be amazing because that's like yeah. that is literally the whole point is it's like exploring yeah. different worlds, yeah we, so. we we found um vr chat we had some good times in because the team also has an oculus quest each so we spent our training budget instead of training in 2020 we spent it on furnishing the team with an oculus quest and it's been hit and miss in the team but a few of us played among us in vr chat in <laughs> virtual reality that was a different level <laughs> really is it good i've never i've never played it is it amazing not the official version just want to oh, say okay. <laughs> that's a bit of a silly question but you know have you got a favorite cat game is there a game out there where you're like <laughs> i've tried various i watched my niece the other day uh, i was up in scotland visiting family for the first time in two years like many people, and uh, she was playing Spirit Pharaoh, which I was pleased to see her playing. I have forced games upon her ever since she was little. I tried with the older one as well. Um, she's less into games, but more into the environment. So I was uh, pleased to just watch her. I love watching people play games. A game like Spirit Pharaoh as well is quite therapeutic just to watch. And there's mm -hmm. a lovely white cat creature in there. But no, there are not enough good cat games. Yeah, I think there's that game Stray, which I really want to try. Yeah, is that coming out on the PlayStation where you play as a stray cat, don't you? Yeah, I mean um, that appeals to me. Oh, but also I was in I was in a I, I attended a metaverse event last night. Nice. Um, and it was like an old Second Life meetup. Even Philip Rosedale was there. He was the CEO of Linden Labs that created Second Life. It was in this. Uh, virtual world called sign or cine i don't know what it's called it was really clunky but i couldn't work out how to properly customize my avatar and i actually spent real money 
because I spent a lot of money in Second Life with so many different avatars, animations, hair, clothes, you know, tons of stuff. And I attended this event, you know, it was a panel event about the metaverse, building the metaverse with Matty Ball. And I was a cat. I bought a cat avatar. So I was able to go as a tabby cat right to the front of the stage because it's a little bit more awkward if you're an avatar just going right up to the front of the stage instead of everyone sitting down. But as a cat, you can do what the hell you like. That's brilliant. I've got no words. I've got no words. <laughs> I've got a photo. I posted it. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, metaverse. That is the, uh, it's the buzzword at the moment. I saw Facebook yeah. were going to invest. Is it 30,000 people they're going to mm. hire to build metaverse? It'll be interesting to see where we are. Player one, vibes, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah. It's so exciting because the games industry has been building the metaverse since Muds and Moos, you know, and, and we're in the business of that. We just call them different words, you know, and it's these kind of hype cycles always come and go. And it's part of what destroyed Second Life in the first instance. But, you know, for me, it's about thinking about the metaverse as this fabric of the next generation of the Internet. You know, so it's all about, for me, standards, interoperability accessibility. I'm not technical enough to do this myself, but I'm uninterested in the foundations, you know, the ability to create this persistent layer of interactions or potential for interactions in new ways. Mm, Yeah, that's why I'm interested in seeing the benefits of how it is going to improve. It almost sounds impossible to do, right? And I think everyone's perception and how they perceive what it yeah how they perceive what the metaverse is and what it should be is completely different to be honest with you i know very little about it but i look at it and so immediately think of things like player one second life Mm -hmm. like almost as one day you're going to look back at things like second life and you're going to be like you know this was one of probably the pivotal moments in creating something like a metaverse where everything is present and vr it really was and i was a journalist at the time i was lucky enough to be a tech journalist for bbc during one of the most i think important times for technology in the 2000s because it was as Facebook was being created, it was before Google and then during Google being what it is, you know, and it was such an exciting time to be reporting on technology and trying to tell those stories in a way that made it relevant to people who are a non-technical audience. Mm. That, and that's what the BBC is really good at doing. I want to ask you about the BBC, actually, and obviously your time as a journalist. I was really keen to find out because I looked, obviously did a bit of stalking, and looked (laughs) at what you studied at uni and looked at your thesis, and it felt like you were quite ahead of the curve in Mm. what you studied and what you focused on. And I understand at the University of Edinburgh, you studied cultural geography and qualitative research methods. Can you tell us about these and just mm. your education in general? Yeah, so I um, I went to Edinburgh in 1992. I was at school in Edinburgh as well, and I loved Edinburgh, so I wanted to stay. And uh, my school was actually the building that JK based Harry Potter oh. Hogwarts <laughs> in Harry That's- Potter on. And she also wrote... Harry Potter at the same time that I was in Edinburgh in the same cafes that I used to hang out in. I wish I'd got to know her. Hi, I'm just, you know, hi, what are you doing? (laughs) Anyway, I was really lucky at Edinburgh because the department's full of lecturers who focused a lot on cultural theory, a lot on identity politics, a lot on gender politics and how the city and the urban environment is, is created and shaped to either facilitate the flow of power and to kind of 
express what your city is. You know, we're a financial capital. We're going to build big old skyscrapers and really make it masculine and money, money, money. The kind of identity of a city is written through the fabric of the buildings and the way that it's planned out to, you know, how some spaces and how city planning and, and town planning was inherent with kind of unconscious bias almost, or sometimes conscious bias to regulate people out of the public space. You know, mm. so we looked at things like, you know, how park benches in America were designed so that homeless people couldn't sleep on them. You know, it's like that was a deliberate attempt to, we're going to cleanse the city of homelessness. Well, that's not the way to tackle homelessness, you know? Yeah. So it was such a fascinating subject area. Our kind of education was all about critical theory and looking at power throughout the world. So the very way in which maps are created as an expression of imperialist power, you know, and colonial power and naming and owning and mapping was a way of exerting power over place and people. So I was obsessed with this and uh, we were given the internet. I first started using the internet in the computer labs. In my second year, we had to word process, they called it, essays, right? So very few of us had computers at home. We didn't have internet at home. We had internet cafes. And there were a couple of internet cafes that were really cool. One called Siberia, which was part of the um, original chain. Another quirky one. I was lucky to have the computer labs and I was using Gopher and then Mosaic to access the internet. I started joining these mailing lists, academic mailing lists, where I was getting access to academic papers and I was like, hey, this is so cool. I've got all this information. I can read these papers that nobody else has access to because everyone's taking the same blooming books out of the library that I need for my essays. And I also started sort of noticing people were talking to their screens and sort of spending a long time in these blue screens. And it turns out it was IRC chat. So I started getting really interested in this sort of community and, and sort of communication and human side of the internet. I did my um, undergrad thesis on internet cafes in Edinburgh, and I likened them to, there's a cultural kind of theory and sort of urban theory and sort of word called flannerism. Okay. Flanners were kind of people who sort of wandered around and sort of observed the city and objectified people, <laughs> sort of people watching. And I sort of compared these cafes as spaces that were very similar to 19th century coffee houses in Paris so that whole kind of coffeehouse culture where people came to meet together in a public space to talk politics, to talk political theory, to kind of engage in this public discourse. And so that's what I did. And my, my, I remember my supervisor at the time was like, I do not understand anything about your thesis. <laughs> I was um, going to ask you, was it well received? <laughs> she, said, she said, I trust that people are talking to each other on this thing that you're calling the internet. And I trust that there's some sort of community stuff going on. So I'm going to, you know, it's great. I had another very supportive feminist theory lecture who I started doing work for as an editorial assistant. She handed me the book, Marge Piercy's He, She, It. And she said, you need to read this and you need to take this research further. Nobody else in geography is talking about what you're talking about. Fact is, nobody else was talking about what I was talking about in any discipline, apart from Howard Rheingold and Sherry Turkle. So I then did my MSc to get more points, to get funding. And that was an MSc by research where you take your topic and you expand how you sort of look at critical theory and research methods. And yeah, then I did the PhD in Newcastle. Mm. 
Yeah, how was that? Like, because that was in online communities. Well, again, yeah. this feels like it's so it's so weird because this feels like it was so far ahead, right? Like Thirty years on, but if you look at like twenty years on, so yeah. <laughs> I I got awarded my PhD twenty years ago um, this year. My undergrad thesis was yeah nineteen ninety six. You know, I did a as part of my research methods one that the essay I was most proud of was one about search engines, and that was nineteen ninety seven. I got the highest mark for that. And this was before Google. So that was looking at search engines as the great encyclopedic and sort of mapping exercises of the Enlightenment. So I compared search engines to what happened in the Enlightenment and the sort of ordering of the world's knowledge, but then kind of warned that, you know, ordering does not come without power relations and Mm. we've got to be really careful. I didn't use the word sort of algorithms, but you know, we've got to be really careful about how search engines are presenting information to us. It's got the potential to be this real democratization of power and information to the whole world. But there's always humans and algorithms involved. I guess you got quite disappointed with how yeah. it's I know what you're going to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of like, it is, um, when you describe it from like your point of view back then and like this period of enlightenment and like, all this information, obviously, like the potential, and the internet still has the same potential, but yeah. actually how it's used is almost like a platform often, like, you know, like social platforms. It almost feels like a factory for things like capitalism and things like this. And um, I think what I learned was nothing ever changes when humans are involved. Nothing. <laughs> God, that's grim, nothing. isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? And, but actually what's helpful is that if you understand that, you can make change happen. You know, I think you can't be utopianist about things. And I think I fell into the trap of being really, I was a technological utopianist. I was a total utopianist. And I also pushed back against the, my whole kind of concept, my thesis for my PhD was about looking at online communities and comparing them to how offline communities operate. I took a, a case study of kids living in Newham in East London who were part of this computer club. And they were very diverse, but they tended to stick with their own kind of cultural and social groups in face-to-face kind of relationships, whereas online, they could perform different aspects and try out different aspects of their identity and their subjectivity. And they could gather around a fandom, uh, like Billy Piper was very popular at the time. So a couple of them are really engaged in the Billy Piper chat room and bulletin boards. And they started to explore aspects of their identity and talk to people and understand difference in a way that they couldn't face-to-face in their face-to-face kind of constructive communities. My central thesis was about pushing back against the idea that was very popular at the time and which Facebook really took on and with quite bad consequences, which was that the internet and virtual communities was all about like-mindedness. It's not. You know, mm. Community is never about like-mindedness. Community is about difference and understanding difference you know, and trying to work your way through difference, you know, and, and what was happening online was that people were gathering around a social object that they loved mm. and encountering difference and mm. negotiating that, you know, you looked at how chat rooms would self-police and self-moderate and the kind of self-regulation of communities is so important. You can't have that being effective if you just go, it's all about like-mindedness. No, it's not. Mm. Difference it's- is critical. It's so, it's so, so interesting. And I, I suppose for you, it must be so disappointing to actually see this potential. And I guess maybe that's obviously loops back to things like the metaverse. And maybe mm. that's a, like a second opportunity to actually create something a bit more positive rather than being so uh, focused on, 
I don't know, corporations, right? Like you said, people, people are naturally end up being focused on their own requirements and their own wants. And unfortunately, that conflicts with community uh, often. Mm. So following uni, <laughs> it's such a shame that we have to move on. But you, you went on to work for the BBC, which was fantastic. Mm. And you were there for the best part of a decade. Mm. I know you left briefly for like 18 months to work at the Institute of Public Policy Research before returning to the BBC. Can you walk us through this decade in your different roles, like summarise that journey? It's quite quite a long period to summarise. Well, when I I finished the PhD, I was like, right, I have literally no idea what I should do with this. (laughs) It's really tough. Most people give up doing a PhD because they feel isolated because you're the only one who's interested in this particular topic, right? So you've got to confront that but also the internet bubble was just bursting in 2000 and I just didn't really have much confidence in what I'd done because it's such a hard slog and if you're feeling like no one understands what you're saying (laughs) it's quite lonely so I didn't know what to do in those days you could look through the Guardian newspaper actual newspaper and circle jobs and I saw a job advertised for BBC Newsround and they were looking for a producer and a researcher to build their first online team. I just thought, hey, they talked about, they used the words virtual community. And I was like, I've just done a PhD on young people and virtual communities. Surely they're going to hire me. I pitched in my CV. I was told that I had zero qualifications for this, but to come in for an interview anyway, because my PhD sounded interesting and they created a researcher job. So I hadn't intended to be a journalist, but it was at the height of Harry Potter mania (laughs) and it was fantastic so I spent three years there and then I was keen to go into grown-up journalism and tech journalism so that was where I really cut my teeth and just got to do the most amazing things and interview the most amazing people as well as talk to you know every opportunity even then BBC was very scared about games but every opportunity I wanted to you know really talk about game worlds but more in the sort of human side, you know, less about a game review and more about Mist and what that was doing with people and parent and kid relationship, you know, all that kind of stuff. My editor, Alf Hamida at the time was really supportive of that. He was a massive games fan as well. The IPPR was the worst year of my life because I was heading up digital society research, but they were only interested in blogs. And I was like, that's so <laughs> five years ago. You should be interested in virtual worlds and games. And, you know, you could do whole kind of climate change kind of activations in Second Life. You know, these are giant simulations of what you could do in the future, you know. And <laughs> it was just a real mismatch. Oh. Uh, so I came back to BBC and I fell into multi-platform channel editor for BBC Three working with the controller directly at that time and everyone thought I was his PA when they would come over you know because that's what happens when you're a woman in the 2000s that was great we did some really innovative stuff I had to then stop the BBC3 team when they were redoing their website they wanted to build Second Life and I said (laughs) you can't build Second Life but we can have avatars wandering around the channel website it's like no Okay, I really like the enthusiasm and I'm glad you're embracing this, but no, I, I think people just want to see what's on telly and you can know. build the communities in different ways. But we did some really innovative stuff. So we were the first channel outside of news before iPlayer to broadcast or simulcast, we used to call it, online. So you could mm. watch BBC Three on the internet. Nobody else in the BBC was doing that. We also piloted five new dramas and we put it to an audience vote as to which one they wanted to see commissioned into full series. And that was Being Human, one. 
being human became a massive success. We worked really hard and I was commissioning a lot of the stuff around the channel and really pushing the let's do a production blog, you know, and the team was all really coming up with amazing ideas of what they should be doing. So we were publishing kind of early concept art of some of the characters, you know, really trying to get that buzz. And so there was so much learning that we did. And then I moved into entertainment, but I had to look after things like Strictly Come Dancing and Top Gear. And uh, But I did commission one of the most successful things, which was the digital, the online only connect. But at that time, like BBC was so afraid, like the TV teams would be so afraid of the internet pulling eyes away from the TV programs. Like, no, like we had to fight tooth and nail for Strictly Come Dancing to mention the website. Really, And we had to do some really silly things because we had restrictions of what we could do with various talents. So the only thing I could do and the only thing I was allowed to touch with Top Gear, because the commercial arm of BBC did the games and everything else. And I was like, I'm in entertainment. Surely I should be commissioning games, right? Mm. And the stuff that we did, it ended up being so successful. You know, we commissioned the Eurovision Red Button Karaoke Sing-Along because I couldn't use the, the talent for Top Gear. It was all deals signed up with commercial arm. We did a red button archive quiz for Top Gear using a sounder like Jeremy Clarkson. That was hugely <laughs> successful. So we always found ways around some of these restrictions mm. that we had. But it was a great time. You know, again, really, yeah. that's kind of 15 years ago, a lot yeah. of this stuff that was being experimented. I do think media companies are quite archaic in their approach. Like I remember print to digital, right? And like yeah. there was such a fear of just going from print and getting your news in print to actually know you, you can get it online. In my kind of academic stuff, I read a lot of Henry Jenkins and stuff around Japanese fan culture and all of this kind of stuff and fan fiction. And, and I think that's the stuff that people couldn't quite connect that I think that the games industry does really well. They think about the community as fandom. Mm. And even sort of the stuff we learned to do at Newsround, you know, we got to use every kind of month or so, we did an interactive web chat, we called it. So it literally was a web chat that kids were typing in questions. We would be sitting there, be after the show, be on the red button, and you'd go to the interactive web chat. We had a little studio and we would have, you know, people wanted access to the stars, to the people. Mm-hmm. So we would have some of the Harry Potter performance actors, or we'd have, you know, Hearsay or <laughs> Hearsay or whatever the band at the time was. <laughs> do you remember Hearsay? I covered, I I covered I the Hearsay dolls launch at Hamleys. I'm very proud of that <laughs> one. We would literally be sitting there and Lisa Mazimba would be doing the, the actual questions and presenting. We'd get the, the typewritten questions from the web chat software. We'd print them out and hand them to Lizo to ask, you know, it was like really clunky, but it was like, that was interact. That was called the interactive studio. And it was like, that's, that's 21 incredible. years ago, for goodness sake. That's crazy, isn't it? That's mad. It's so good. It's people so want good. access to those stars, you know, and that's what the internet gives you that. I think it's um, crazy because I look at, to be honest, part of me expects it to have gone, gone a lot further over the last two decades, like that yep. level of interactivity. You look at Twitch and streamers, and obviously where the great thing with them is that you can have these huge fan bases and you can live chat with them. There's like a, a streamer called Asmongold, for example, and he's a big World of Warcraft streamer, although he plays other MMOs and games. But he's brilliant at being really active and 
you know building this community with and it is very interesting obviously talking about earlier not to back loop too much but a lot of his community have different opinions on things but that's what creates right. the community but i've got to ask you because i really want to talk about yuki but i know before you went to yuki you were actually the commission editor at channel four yeah so it sounds like you're obviously moving on from bbc like what happened there and what was it like at channel four channel four feel quite creative right they seem to embrace yeah. different types of entertainment i had met a couple of key people at bbc because we were all there was a handful of us at the BBC who I'm still really in, in in contact with who were all absolute digital believers and really there from the get-go. One of them was Alice Taylor, uh, another was Matt Locke, and they had both moved over from BBC. They'd been in various different roles. Alice, towards the end of her time at BBC, I mean, she was the one, she was pushing Radio 6, I think. She wanted to commission Radio 6 channel into GTA, And that was kind of, didn't happen. But she was the one who was kind of pushing on that door. There's only a certain amount you can do at the BBC. So they'd both gone to Channel 4 and were working with Janie Walker, head of education there, who was really forward looking. You know, Channel 4 had an education public service remit. And in the past, they used to sell education programming to schools to be wheeled in in the telly and put the VHS in and that's what you'd watch at school. So they wanted to modernize how they reach 14 to 19 year olds in their leisure time with non-curriculum based learning. Mm. And so the whole strategy there was about commissioning games. And that was down to Matt Locke and to Alice. And then Matt went to cover someone's maternity leave. And Alice said to me, look, you're so frustrated at the BBC because you're not allowed to commission games. You're not allowed to commission comic books. And I know you want to do all of that. Because by that stage, having got to know her a little bit at BBC, we were all kind of comrades in arms. (laughs) I pitched my my hat in for that job. Worked with Alice really closely and Joe Roach as well and Margaret Robertson. And we were a really happy band there for some time. Alice had already commissioned some really fantastic stuff like The Curfew, made by Little Loud in Brighton, you know, winning BAFTAs, doing some incredible stuff. And that, I think, was so critical. And I got to cut my teeth on some really great projects, again, working with Little Loud and Preloaded and really fantastic companies who really understood free-to-play games it wasn't free to play in, in the way that we think of them now. They were just free to play. <laughs> there was no monetization. Free to play. Like. Exactly. But really kind of tackling important themes like body image or surveillance or privacy or food health, you know, so some really great projects. And it was really good fun. And then it kind of went a little bit sort of pear-shaped because I think Channel 4 didn't really understand games at that time. And this opportunity at Yuki came along and I remember thinking I was approached about it I was headhunted for the job and I remember thinking what the hell is a trade association (laughs) (laughs) isn't that where you you go when you're at the end of your career and you're ready to kind of retire can you tell us about it like tell us about Yuki and obviously your role because you've been there nine nine and a half years 10 years in January I mean it's the longest I've been in one organization and I think it's such a privileged role that I have. It is, I'm so fortunate to be in this job and to, to work with the people I work with. At the time, Yuki had just, in 2010, Yuki had rebranded from Elspa. And Elspa was created in 1989, and it was mostly a publisher's association because that's what existed in the UK and just that's what, what the business models were. It was all about box products. Then things were changing. So it rebranded. It wanted to change who it represented. It wanted to open its doors to 
developers. And so they were bringing in new leadership to do that. Mm. And I got the job. So a lot of it was, it was hilarious. I always remember the first time I came in to meet the team was at Christmas, just before I was starting the job, which was going to be in the first week in January in 2012. And I was also invited to the board Christmas lunch as well, which was a kind of like, oh, (laughs) hello. (laughs) And I remember just walking into the room and just, I think people were just a bit kind of, oh. So daunting. Yeah. And also people didn't know how old I was. I think they thought I was a lot younger than I actually am, uh, which is flattering. (laughs) But also I think people were like, why have we got this young person? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I was 40. I would have taken um, that. I would have been like, I've rolled with it, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm not going to, you know. But I think um, it was this weird thing because people were like, oh, someone from outside the games industry. And I never quite understood what they meant by that. And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? Just because I haven't worked at a big publisher or a development company doesn't mean I'm not, you know, I've been in interactive entertainment all my career. Yeah. <laughs> really. You know, I saw the games industry as very much looking at what games in a traditional sense were, whereas I'd always been interested in games as much bigger, much wider, much more about these canvases, these worlds, these story worlds, or these, you know, this incredible Mm. creativity that's really driving and defining entertainment for a modern age. So I guess that's where, (laughs) you know, so I was like, well, you know, whatever. I commissioned a lot of games, by the way. I even commissioned Poacher Patrol, on uh, news round if anyone played that and we commissioned other games you know so i'm really privileged to work with the people and i like to see yuki as a kind of a really great place to cut your teeth in the games industry so we've got quite a lot of people who might be in their first or second job you know and they Mm. get to experience you've got to know everything about the games industry because we're dealing with over 530 companies as members but the whole sector They might be a mobile games company. They have different business models. They might be console. They might be a service company, a tech, you know, so the whole kind of, you need to know a lot about a lot. And I think that's a great place to be. I've always been someone who, who wants to know everything, right? Yeah. I might not be expert at anything. And that's the skill I learned as a journalist because I had to do interviews. I was also covering stories about the the techie side of science. So I was doing a lot of stories about drones and about, you know, we, we called them unmanned aerial vehicles at that time. Oh yeah, uh, UA- UAVs. UAVs, <laughs> you know, and I had to do, you know, nanocomputing and nanotechnology. I don't know about these things. So you really had to, as a journalist, when you were doing an interview and talking to the world's expert, you really had to kind of, what's the word? B- bullshit your way through? I don't know. <laughs> so you just had to kind of take in a lot... So I, I guess I learned that skill to be able to just know just enough about the things that are important. This job is constantly challenging and different because the industry is constantly moving, shifting, changing, innovating, creating. I never want to leave the games industry because it's full of the most incredible people that I have been outside the industry. Mm. Um, and I would really miss working with the people I work with. It's incredibly unique like that. I think I think the best thing about and obviously extremely lucky to do this podcast, for example, and meet like people like yourself and a lot of founders of small indie studios which have gone on to be like huge studios and developers and publishers. And the most brilliant thing is I think everyone seems so modest and humble. I know it sounds crazy, but everyone's here for the same reason. They want to create games or help the industry create, right? Like and there is a genuine passion that 
the games industry just has it's a combination of people passion and creativity which mm. really is such a fantastic mix that is i almost feel like completely unique because a lot of people are more introverted in some ways but then when you start talking about certain elements and certain like factors within the industry or talking about them personally they, everyone's got such a great story without sounding like too cheesy it's just mm. it's brilliant and i think um to your point about uh you know like walking in and it being like christmas like obviously being christmas dinner and this it sounds like hell i do think that's probably one of the weaknesses of the industry when companies are recruiting they're trying to recruit people who've got experience within the industry but they forget the industry is still extremely young and when i now recruit like i learned this a couple of years ago it's actually about recruiting people who love games and they generally just succeed because they've got so much passion and they want to absorb all that knowledge as quickly as possible and then just learn the skill right like if you're doing yeah. sales learn that skill if it's something technical you can learn it but you can't teach passion absolutely um, how has the industry changed right during your role because obviously it's nearly a decade it's a long time to see a lot of change yeah and again I think you know with much in life everything's about timing I sort of arrived at a really good time when the mobile apps ecosystem was just beginning to start to flourish so you saw a lot more kind of mobile developers and development happening internet was getting stronger in terms of just our broadband infrastructure so business that results in changing business models. I mean, if you look at in the past, I did a lot of reporting on what was happening in Korea when I was a tech journalist and I got to interview Jonathan Fatality Wendell, you know, <laughs> as the sports professional when I was a journalist and stuff. And then I was always fascinated. And again, I think that's where my geography brain came in. If you track where a lot of innovative companies or a lot of kind of innovation in game worlds or, or popular culture happens with technology, it's always where you've got really strong broadband. And so Korea, they had 100 meg broadband, you know, in 2000. And they have cities that are not so spread out. Well, they're spread out, but they're very vertical buildings. So it's mm -hmm. easier to, to cable up a whole building. So it's different to the kind of geography of, of the UK. And it really frustrated me that for a long time, we just didn't have the internet capability to innovate in terms of how we deliver content. And now you see we do, and you're seeing streaming, cloud gaming, you know, all these incredible kind of innovations which shift business models into different areas. Mm. So I think that over the last 10 years, we also, I joined just at the right time to take all the credit clearly for Next Gen Skills campaign, <laughs> <laughs> which got computer science back onto curriculum, but really the credit belongs with Ian Livingston and, and, and co. And but we did at, at Yuki, we led that whole campaign, which which had Google and Microsoft and British Computer Society and all sorts of other people who wanted the same thing. And so that was a real kind of pivotal moment. And then, of course, we really got stuck in as, as Yuki at that time into supporting the video games tax relief that got greenlit in 2013 and you know that's been a tremendous support because it really has incentivized game development in this country and all of that combination that ecosystem that's now beginning to flourish we're seeing reaping of the the kind of harvest of that now it is a lot of acquisitions that are happening a lot of investment in the games industry from overseas companies a lot of companies setting up development studios in the UK because we have the best talent but it's not without its issues. You know, the more consolidation you get, sometimes that can be a little bit sort of concerning. You want a plurality of independent companies and companies who are pushing boundaries in different ways. You want to be able to have 
UK created IP owned and staying within the UK. You want to be able to be supporting the export of that IP to global audience. 99% of our IP is, but you kind of want that mixed ecosystem. You want that ecosystem to still be plural, if you like. Yeah. So I think for us at Yuki, we've we've really sort of focused over the last year and a half, particularly during the pandemic, when we didn't have international trade events, to kind of looking at how we support businesses to start up and scale up more. We've always been in that business, but we never really had an identifiable program that had a beginning and an end for people to be part of. So we're really focusing on that with a scale-up program with Creative England and an accelerator. International competition is getting harder. You're seeing the tax breaks come about in Ireland. We're seeing tax breaks now in Germany. You know, everyone looks to the UK and our, you know, trade body equivalents in these different countries, we share a lot of knowledge together and help each other along. We're kind of sometimes we're like, hey, but don't steal our talent. <laughs> you know, you know, not everyone's going to move to Berlin. Felix, Felix and I are really good kind of banter about that. But, you know, we all win, essentially, mm. if we have fantastic ecosystems all over the place. But it also gives us more kind of leverage, I guess, to say to government, look, we're doing fantastically well. And when you're talking government about leveling up agenda around the country, that's us. When you're mm. talking about innovation-led recovery, that is us. We are the business to back for the 21st century. But you've got to keep your eye on the ball because international competition is rife. Games are only increasing. And that's not just because of the pandemic. Mm. I'm going to ask you about this later about Canada because obviously they're seeing an incredible amount of investment. It, I think it's fantastic what's been achieved by Yuki. It's hard, isn't it, with the innovation versus stability, I guess, right? Because often there's a cost for innovation and that is for every, every nine innovation or 10 innovations that you try and bring in or to market, eight of them might fail and Ooh. it's not stable. And I think with the video games industry, it's increasingly apparent that actually big AAA publishers and larger publishers and developers don't want to innovate as much as indies because indies, I think if you look at the last five, 10 years, that is where the innovation is coming from. And I think the UK is fantastic with that. Like there is a lot of indies. There is this like fear though, right? Like we don't, it's not a fear, but I guess what would be great to know is how, how do we take that next step? We don't have like a AAA publisher in the UK, like a British AAA publisher. I mean, you've, you obviously like, you know, France have got Ubisoft, for example, and, you know, America's got Mini, like China, have obviously got Tencent, the largest media company in the world. Korea's got several. Japan's got obviously got loads. It's interesting that the UK doesn't, even though it's one of the largest games markets in the world. What do you think stopping that from happening? Well, I suppose I would ask the question, why do we privilege AAA over anything else? Because AAA doesn't always equal millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds, right, uh, in no. revenue. No. <laughs> you know, you can see equally that kind of financial success with great midsize or smaller companies in the UK that are indies or that are, you know, Mediatonic is a great example of a company that we started working with right from the beginning. Actually, I met Paul and Dave when I was at Channel 4, and we almost commissioned them to do something. And they were kind of making that choice as to whether to go with us or, you know, do something. I'm glad they didn't go with Channel 4 at that point. But, you know, I think that that's a great example of, of a company that really has sort of persevered and done some really interesting things and been clever about the markets it accesses, mm. uh, particularly the Asian market. 
you know, I get the point and I think we've got some, you know, look at what Team 17 and Curve Digital yeah. are doing and other development studios in the UK that are UK born who are opening up their own publishing arms. You know, the sort of support in the background of the likes of Tencent, I think is incredibly important and really valuable just to boost that confidence and to give that sort of financial backing to perhaps do those more innovative or risky ideas. I think people are realizing that actually because our business models are changing, the games industry isn't necessarily a hit-driven business. You hear a lot of people talking about the move from games as a service to games as platforms. And, you know, that is about the fact that we have these communities of people who will come back and stay with us. And again, I think Fortnite's done an incredible job of kind of showing people how to do that. It's not to say that we wouldn't get a massive triple, but what do we mean by that now? I just see it as, okay, if you're making a global success or a, a game that is enjoyed by the globe, you're paying the bills and you're getting a return on that investment, that is fantastic. Yeah. You know, that is absolutely brilliant. And that's building a business. And then this kind of stuff takes time. Mm. And yeah. I think, again, sort of making sure our job is to make sure we keep a healthy and stable regulatory environment, that we continue to get that confidence and support from government where required. It's not asking for handouts, but it's kind of saying, look, this is why the VGTR is, is important. This is why the talent pipeline and making sure that we're really focusing on diversity and inclusion is important because without diversity and inclusion, you don't get innovation. That's the bottom line. Most innovation has come from accidental things. That's what we know. And very often the most accidental things are the things that, you know, people have taken for granted. And when you start to think about accessibility, for instance, or inclusion in that way, if you make your game accessible for everyone, of course, you're going to get more players. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be more successful. Yeah. You know, obviously, we speak about the talent in the UK and about obviously, you know, the UK is doing an incredible job, and UK is a big part of that by attracting investment, getting support from the government. The key thing with obviously all these developers and publishers is the talent, right? And like you said, like the UK is, you know, at the vanguard of like developer and video game talent. But and without getting political, obviously Brexit, I feel. It probably is incredibly damaging to an industry that is incredibly broad in terms of its diversity, um, mm. in terms of like different language sets and in terms of different, you know, I look at, say, localization within video games, for example, and you'll have a studio that, will, that could mm. have, you know, people from 20 different countries covering like 20 different languages. How does the UK now compete for talent and actually retain the talent within the UK? I think that question or the answer to that question is now different because of the pandemic. Mm. I think that a lot of issues on mobility of talent have been masked because of the pandemic, particularly the impact of Brexit. I do know that there have been some improvements to the immigration system, the visa system for tier two in particular. Mm. Um, but it's, again, still not without problems. You know, look, before Brexit, 19, 19% of our industry came from the EEA. And that's really important, you know, mm. and we had a huge amount of international outside of EU talent as well. That route for international talent is easier, but the EU route's not. But I don't think we're going to see the true impact um, for a couple of years yet, to be honest. I think the pandemic has brought about a lot of different thinking in terms of how teams can work remotely how actually it can be a matter of choice as to where you want to live. And I think, you know, we have to think hard about 
what the impact on the UK ecosystem of that is. I think that the levelling up agenda, even though government took that term from games without realising it, it's quite funny. I think it's a really important one. And, you know, I think a lot of people know through their own experiences of the pandemic, you know, how much it's been interesting to kind of spend money where you have been allowed out to stay local and actually spending money in your local economy rather than going into London or going into Manchester or going into Glasgow, you know, actually those things really play an important part in terms of the levelling up agenda. But again, we've been really good at that as an industry traditionally anyway. You know, we've got 23 key clusters across the country already Mm. and really important places like Leamington that are a real centre of excellence. So I think... um, The talent question is still incredibly important because what we're also seeing at the same time is a lot of people wanting the same skill sets in other industries. So we can see already, you know, we've got over two and a half thousand jobs that are open in the games industry at the moment. You know, why can't we fill them? Well, a lot of the talent that we need is also what the fintech sector wants or virtual production uh, Mm. in film industries or VFX needs. So we're competing with other sectors We're also competing internationally. You know, everyone wants that AI programmer, you know, for whatever industry. I mean, I know where I'd rather be. I'd rather be making a game than in the banking sector. But there you go. That's just my my personal preference. What we do at school level, I think, is incredibly important and outside of school. And I think I'm really, really, really proud of what Shanila, um, who's head of education, does with Digital Schoolhouse and what the team does with Digital Schoolhouse Programme, which is our play-based learning and unplugged kind of in-school time curriculum-based programme, you know, and that really is trying to equip the next generation with the skill sets we need and the inspiration that they can see that actually doing computer science takes you into these creative careers. And I think, again, our partnership with InterGames in terms of the Video Game Ambassadors Scheme, in terms of all the careers advice, we partner with them on the Kickstart Scheme which is government-funded places for people at risk of long-term unemployment. You know, those are all really important initiatives, and we need to continue to do those uh, and push government in really seriously investing in these skills of the future. We need help, though, and support as industries to do that. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Do you you think the government is doing enough to support the games industry so it doesn't have to constantly create its own initiatives to prepare people to get into the industry. Um, From personal experience, I actually don't think it is. All these good initiatives seem to be coming from the games industry. Ian Livingston was on um, in season one and we spoke at length about education and his academies that he's founded. And Is the government, I know it's helped like tax breaks and things, but is the government taking it as seriously as it could? You know, the government is the government and then there's the civil service and then there's government departments. And I think um, our home department is DCMS and they certainly take video games very seriously. And we've had so much tremendous support from DCMS. I think the problem lies with, uh, if I'm honest, with um, getting through to the Department of Education. And also, you know, my mum was a teacher. Teachers have always been undervalued in the same way that NHS has. It's always been under pressure. There's always been um, stuff that gets in the way for teachers. Shanila was a teacher for 15 years. So she knows full well uh, some of the limitations and pressures that schools have. That is a problem in the system that I think does need government to kind of unlock that 
or unblock those things. I mean, even, you know, technology is always an issue for schools, you know, which is why with Digital Schoolhouse, for instance, we really focused on unplugged activities. But you look at the wonderful stuff that Ubisoft has done with Discovery Tour, how many schools are actually able to play or to run that on their hardware is the question. And, you know, Ubisoft are well aware of that. You know, we're well aware of that. We started the Devices for All campaign to encourage games companies to donate their hardware when they're recycling it to schools because they can't run these things effectively for everyone. They don't all have PlayStations or they don't, you know, it's really, really challenging. Is it government or is it, you know, whose job is it to do this? We do the right thing by creating our own initiatives and it means that we're not relying on the rug being pulled out from under our feet when government funding goes a different way. But we do need to work in partnership with government or they need to work in partnership with us to understand what's happening at an education level and to really take steam. So that combination of computer science, you know, systems thinking and humanities subjects and arts and creative subjects really seriously. The creative industries as a sector is the fastest growing sector in this country. You know, you look at the success of Squid Game. I went to Korea several times with sort of creative industries delegation a couple of times. And we we went to G-Star as well. We took Sajid Javid there. He was one of the kind of people lining up. And they looked like Star Trek people. (laughs) Uh, They're pressing this big red button that snipped the ribbon to open G-Star one year. It was really weird. And um, South Korea has always had actually a really rich kind of cultural history and and this desire to be really leading in terms of creative industries and filmmaking and games. And they're doing it. And that's because the government is really serious about it. And they're not actually privileging either kind of film over games. They're treating them all as kind of this is really important industries of the future. Mm. Yeah, and I, I don't think that game can do much more than it already mm. has to prove like its value. It's obviously now larger than film and music combined as an industry. I love that you're so interactive with the community, right? Like you're so vocal. I know you've just got back from Develop where you've been just stay, staying in touch. I can see you laughing because I know, I know you're just like, go, go, go. I think it's fantastic because it shows such a investment i suppose a personal investment as well obviously of course as a professional investment does that ever cross that boundary where you end up feeling personally responsible for the success of the games industry yeah i always feel personally responsible (laughs) it's difficult because obviously we don't make games we're, we're not publishing games as yuki but we do provide that that sort of guidance and, and leadership, I guess, in terms of industry best practice, guidance that, that companies need. And it is it can be really exhausting because I think particularly it always sort of surprises me, but I shouldn't be surprised really because I'm I'm in this role. But how many people want to speak to us or me? You know, I'm like yeah. <laughs> I don't have any answers either. And people mm do sort of look to us as an organization for answers. And that is really important. And it's not that I don't have any answers, but you do feel sometimes that that pressure, if you don't know what the future holds for the industry, for instance, which was the title of my talk, which it's George and my team submitted on my behalf. So I'm going to blame it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what am I talking about, George? You know, my talk was all about what's next for the UK games industry. It's important that we as Yuki are thinking about this and, 
you know, I think I've said before, you know, we're on the shoulder of the industry looking down the road and trying to make sure that there's no no speed bumps or potholes in the road, you know, so that businesses can have a smooth journey to success. So, mm. you know, it, but I'm, I don't have a crystal ball and I don't even know what's happening next week, let alone the next 10 years. But, <laughs> but it, it's always our sort of challenge to find out and you find out by listening to people. And that's the only way that we can do our jobs, which is constantly talking to people, keeping in touch, making sure that we know what's going on in the industry mm. and with people's lives, you know, and their businesses. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because with the games industry, it's so community focused. Mm. And sometimes and I think it's from no fault of their own. I don't think it's on purpose, but sometimes developers, especially larger publishers, can become quite insulated because obviously they're just focusing on getting content out and they don't always hear the community voice. And often you'll see like on forums and things like this, that communities are very vocal when developers don't get back to them. So I can only imagine that that pressure is then exemplified when it's actually the developers within the UK who are chasing you and publishers who are chasing you for you to give them feedback and for you Mm. to help them and guide them. You did touch on it then, and I I know you don't have a uh, crystal ball, but where would you, you, it'd be crazy if you did, um, but where (laughs) would you like to see the UK's games industry in five years? Where do you think, not where will it be, because like you said, I think it's almost impossible to predict, but where would you like it to be? And how do we get there? Well, um, that's going to be the focus of a big bit of work that we're going to do towards the end of this year and hopefully publish in this sort of vision of the industry. And again, it's about asking the industry that question, you know, depending on what kind of businesses they are. I think the announcement of the partnership that we have with Creative England on the Accelerator program is really important Mm. and the Scale Up program, which we've been doing with them as well, because, you know, the amount of interest in consolidation and acquisitions, investments that's been happening over the last 18 months has been extraordinary. That's a real signal of confidence in the UK games industry. But we need to maintain that kind of level of fresh businesses uh, starting up, scaling up, being created. Because, you know, if you get consolidation, you sometimes have a concern about, is the industry a little bit more vulnerable? Is it as diverse in terms of an ecosystem as it could be. That's where, you know, I think we've gone through a really interesting golden decade, I would say, of game development and businesses in the UK. And largely that is down to initiatives like the video games tax relief or or that kind of support, which has really helped de-risk and really helped, again, to make the UK an attractive place to set up your studio. So Mm. that is a really positive sign. But again, we need to maintain that competitiveness. So I want to see the next 10 years as another golden age, you know, where we're seeing all kinds of different businesses, again, start up. And I think what's really interesting is because, you know, we have a lot of people who have been in the industry 30, 40 years for as long as the industry has been around. And it's a lot of those people who then sort of will be going on to start up another business or, you know, that's what's really interesting. You sort of look at acquisitions and investments. And then you look at the leadership of those companies and you go, I wonder if they're now going to do something else that's really interesting and exciting. You know, it's such a, I love this industry because it's always moving and there's always something new to be talking about. You know, apparently I thought develop conference sessions this year would be buzzword bingo for metaverse, but apparently Mm. it was buzzword bingo for NFTs, you know, and so, (laughs) so, you know, and that's something that who, you know, nobody knew what an NFT was two Mm. years ago. So, you know, there's always really interesting things happening in the industry and that opens up new opportunities. And and that's where our role as Yuki is to make sure that then 
there's no sort of regulatory threats or dangers down the road that will get in the way of that kind of innovation thriving, but also that businesses are able to start up and to take advantage of these new things um, yeah. in exciting ways. Something like NFTs and like the metaverse, it must be it must be incredibly challenging because it's like there has to be some form of regulation and there has but at the same time you don't want it to be that in the UK for some like absurd reason we almost like handicap and restrict our developers when say in the US, um, like Germany, France, other parts of the world, they're encouraging the use of NFT development within like interactive media. It's interesting to see where it goes. I know obviously Steam recently said they won't accept them, but then Epic were like, well, we yeah. will, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's always a, a lovely dance to watch with those two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got to ask you, because obviously like we're talking about like, this long-term plan and I think a big part and something that comes up on a lot of the episodes on the podcast, and this is from like with guests across the world, is diversity and inclusion within video games and how it's making great strides, but occasionally there will be well, not occasionally, but, you know, there are often stories breaking where those strides, are, it's like, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Within the UK, I, I think it's an, the UK is obviously incredibly diverse. It's got an incredibly diverse culture, like um, within London, within its major cities. It's fantastic. It's really, really cool. It's one of the best things about the UK. How do we make the games industry more diverse and consistently, um, not just like a, you know, trending moment, but how do we actually instill real change? Yeah, it's so important because diversity is the engine of creativity and innovation ultimately. And we have very diverse players around the world, 3 billion diverse players and even more to come. So you need to be appealing to different kinds of people with your entertainment experiences and storytelling. So diversity, it's not just a thing that you sort of think about over there as something separate or something that you need to do. It is absolutely integral to a successful sector and a successful society, really. We launched the um, Raise the Game Pledge with some founding partners two years ago, and it's coming up to two-year anniversary in February. And at the same time, we'll launch the results of the second census of the games industry. And we're hoping to get double the amount of responses that we had in the first census. And that report was really important because alongside the pledge, which was centered around three pillars, which was, you know, helping companies to recruit more diversely, create inclusive workplace cultures, and to diversify on-screen representation. Those were the three pillars. But the report itself, uh, the census, really delved down into lots of detail around you know, age, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, neurodiversity, anxiety, mental health issues, you know, it really is wasn't quite important to take that intersectional look at who we are. And hopefully the second census will show that things have moved on in a positive way. I really hope they have. And I think they mm. have, because certainly over the last two or three years, there's been a lot more activity, a lot more community groups setting up and networks that are supporting diversity in the industry. One of the most important sort of diversity aspects for me is I think neurodiversity is often not talked about in other sectors. And I think it's something like 11% of our industry is neurodiverse. That's very significant. And that is really important as well, because there's a real pathway. It's a really positive story that this industry actually attracts a lot of people who, who think differently. And that's what's required in our games. It's, it's what's required when we're problem solving. It's what's required when you're being creative. I think one of the other really important diversity indicators is socioeconomics. 
And the first census showed us that we were extremely middle class. (laughs) 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 And um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not a great thing because how are we going to go about attracting people from different socioeconomic groups? You know, Mm. we shouldn't be insisting perhaps that everyone has a degree, for instance. We just advertise two jobs uh, at the moment. We've got two jobs live. And obviously they're not developer jobs or anything. I deleted the requirement to have a university degree because I was like, why do we do that? I mean, what what's that sort of saying? Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of my team members said, well, this is what it says to me. This is why we have it. And I said, I just don't think it's needed. Let's see what happens if we don't include it. And we know that a lot of our jobs are highly skilled and require a quite high level of expertise, which is often degree level. So programming in particular. But then we also know a lot of people who are self-taught you know, who mm. didn't get the opportunity to do computer science at school. So are self-taught and passionate about programming. That's how the industry was created in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, for me, and going to university in the UK, unless you are Scottish, not just in Scotland, costs a lot of money. And so that's an immediate barrier for a lot of people. We and others, you know, we, we partner with Intergames to make sure that we're really trying to talk about careers and the different roles and pathways into the industry at school level, because a lot of stereotypes still exist. A lot of kids have parents or carers who want them to be accountants or lawyers or doctors because they still think that those are proper jobs, you know? Um, And I tell tell the kids, if we do a school talk, if I do a school talk, I tell them, you tell your parents that those are the jobs that the robots are going to take over first. (laughs) Okay. There you go. Okay. And that is really important. And then it's important then to, we've got our video games ambassador speaker program. So that's a school speaker program and it's lots of industry volunteers that just need to do one thing a year and they go to, into schools and, or do a workshop or just do a talk. And it is so important to get so many different kinds of people going into schools so that kids can see they can relate to people in different ways. Mm. You know, and they say, like, oh, that person's just like me. I didn't know that actually, because I like drawing, maybe I could get a job like them, you know? Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Because I think as the industry's grown, like you're, you're right, like, you know, like if you look at the people who originally like, just like founded the industry, they did just self-taught. And you even look at companies like Mojang, for example, it was like three people in a bedroom or three, you know, it was, and obviously they sold to Microsoft for like 3 billion. And so many of these people who are actually in the industry have gone on to have great success, mm. have done it without a degree and it has been self-taught. And I think, yeah, completely right with programming. And technical roles often do need that higher level of education. But I think one of the great ways of increasing diversity is moving from this just this more middle class centric society within the video games industry is by removing the requirement for mm. a degree. Because it's so often, I know it's fantastic. I don't have a degree. So I'm only speaking from the perspective of someone who like, I've only got GCSEs, but I find like within our industry, passion and the willing to want to learn, I think it just goes so much further. I've got to ask you, right, because obviously I know Yuki's done so much and you've done so much at Yuki and it's it's fantastic. Do you have an idea for you personally, like not for Yuki, but for you personally, what you want your legacy to be when it comes to like changing roles or, you know, where, whenever that time may be? I, I really don't know. You know, I just want to do the best job that I can and eventually sort of leave proud in knowing that I created a really great place to work. I hope we have. Yuki is a really, I think, brilliant place to cut your teeth in the industry. 
I love having people who, you know, it's their first or second job at Yuki and uh, they're getting to know everything about the games industry in like the space of a year and then they can decide where they want to go. You know, nothing is ever perfect in that sense. It's always really hard looking after humans, you know, and and, and making sure everyone's okay. It's, it's really mm. tough doing that. And you realize, well, the longer that I'm in this job, certainly the more I've realized that a lot of the job of a CEO, it's not about what you do. It's about the people who are doing it. You know, your role as a CEO is to create an environment that they're going to thrive in. That's your job, mm. you know, and giving them that sort of autonomy to be creative in whatever roles that they're doing. But it is tough, you know, because I'm always someone who wears my heart on my sleeve. You know, I've never been someone who can kind of really separate personal from professional. You know, I have boundaries, mm. but I'm very much someone who does wear my heart and my my sleeve, you know, and is quite sort of honest. And and I will say to my team, if I'm not feeling happy, you know, if I'm feeling a bit down or or whatever. So maybe something to do with that, you know, I want to be a really good boss. I also want to be a really good, strong leader and strong advocate for the industry. I would love us to really figure out what would be the next big policy win for the industry, for instance. And that's going to be something that we're thinking about over the next year. You know, what would really be an amazing achievement for the industry that really helps them? You know, much like mm. the Next Gen Skills campaign that Yuki spearheaded and coordinated with Ian Livingston at the helm, that unlocked, with a lot of other efforts from other people as part of the campaign, computer science and put it back onto the, uh, the school curriculum. That kind of level of transformative action, I think, is is really important. So I'd, I'd love to to be part of unlocking something really fabulous for the industry. That's fantastic. And I love that you do kind of wear your heart on your sleeve. I mean, it's, I think it's, because you know what? I think it's like something that's just so understated. I can't remember if I said that earlier in the episode, but I think it's to be in your role and to have the responsibility that you do as an individual and Yuki does as an organization. It's, it's quite incredible, especially like within the UK, where obviously it's seen as one of like the capitals of video game development. But I think it's fantastic that you are so hands-on. It'd be almost like adverse to the growth of the games industry if you didn't bring that level of character, I guess. Last question. How would you summarize your career so far in a sentence? It's quite a tough one. To give you an example, so Lorne Lanning, the the, uh, the gentleman who created uh, the Odd World series and founded, he summarised this by saying it had been brutally enlightening. Um, <laughs> Gosh, I mean, I think so far my career has been a series of fortunate luck and timing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, so many people in this industry, well, when people ask me the question, I hear this a lot, nobody has like one set way or standard path in this industry. And mine has been particularly weird. And it's just been a matter of right time, right place and mm. right passion, I guess. You know, I, I really have been very passionate about the internet and communities, you know, all my kind of academic life and my career so far. So I'm so lucky to be in the games industry. I'm really, 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 really fortunate to be in this industry, but it has been a matter, I think, of luck and timing. Okay. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> That's a great sorry Again, a very honest. <laughs> but I don't think it's that. I think you're being very modest personally. 
We'll take that as your final answer. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you've been obviously an absolute fabulous guest. Thank it's been you. such a pleasure having you on and uh, I can't wait to see the exciting things that you and Yuki continue to do. Thank you very much. It's great fun. All of the views you've heard here today are of Joe's and my own, and they do not represent our employers in any way. And if you'd like to get in touch with us for any reason, you can do at gamedevshow at ptw.com. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Stay hydrated. Until next time. Game over.